when I was in school many, many years ago, growing up, there was a saying that the saying used by many people was this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt. This was a story that was told teachers would use it, parents would use it, because sometimes, hard to believe, kids can be mean. They can say unkind words to one another. And those can hurt. And so after someone would call you stupid or fat or ugly, then parent or teacher would say, oh, just remind this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And then I think back to my days of school. Think back to my elementary school and middle school and going through high school and playing sports and playing football and wrestling and doing all those things and all the injuries and wounds and hurts I suffered. And the thing is, I don't remember many of those. I'm sure there were a lot of times I was bruised, a lot of times I walked away and was in a lot of pain. But you know what I do remember? Things people said to me. Names they called me, unkind words. And I also remember the words that I said to others. I had a quick tongue, especially in high school. And found ways to use it. I found I had this, I won't call it a gift, a talent, for being able to find just the right word, just the right little phrase to say to bring somebody down. And I remember even at my high school reunion, my fifth reunion, going back and having a conversation with one young woman who had been a target of many of my attacks. And, and apologizing to her and realizing that over those four years of high school, the ways that I had hurt her and how much wounds can heal. So when James talks about the power of the tongue, in some sense, it's not something we need to prove. Sometimes we read our Bible and we, we look and we're not sure, well, what's going on here? I'm not sure I understand that. Sometimes we read our Bible and maybe we say, I'm not sure I believe that. Can you help me understand it? But when James writes and says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great posts, and it can set an entire forest on fire, and it can wound, it can hurt, most of us will say, yep, we know that to be true. So the letter of James is what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. James, the half-brother of Jesus, has written this letter, this book to a group of followers of Jesus scattered across there. And he's writing and he gives them this practical wisdom for living. He's talked about challenging trials. He's talked about how our life needs to reflect what we believe. And now he comes in chapter 3 and he says, Not many of you should become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. He's kind of reminding people, but then he says, We stumble in many ways. And then he said, anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. So how many of us are never at fault in what we say? Well, okay, so, so then he goes on. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. He says, our tongues are these tiny little things. But they have the power to set the direction of our lives. And in part, what he's saying is, if you can demonstrate control of your tongue, you can probably control the rest of your life. And there's this funny kind of re 
relationship between the tongue and the rest of our body. And as we're going to look at this, is in some way the tongue steers the whole body, but we also realize that what we say comes from inside of us. It's a reflection of what we do. And so maybe you've experienced this, or maybe you've had somebody else experience this, where you're sitting there and something happens and words come out of your mouth. And after you've said them, you think, oh, I... And maybe you said, I can't believe I said that. Or, why would I say such a thing? Or, I'm not the kind of person who would say that. Well, but you've just said it. So you are exactly the kind of person who would say that. Because the tongue can also be a revealer of what's inside. That sometimes in that moment of anger, that moment of passion, that moment of fury, when something comes out, what's being revealed is what's truly in our heart. And so the tongue works both those ways. It reveals what's inside, but it also has the ability to control that when we speak things, it begins to shape heart. As we begin to name things, we name things in a particular way, it can begin to shape the way we think about things. We can look at issues and we can say, if I refer to it as a baby growing inside of a woman, that shapes in particular, how I think about it. But if it's simply a part of a woman's body or a choice, then it starts to shape again the way I think about that. So our tongue also has the power to shape the way we do things. It's like a spark that spreads the whole body. It does damage to others and damage to yourself. It engulfs and it destroys you. It says if you hate with your tongue, you will hate with the rest of yourself. And so this tongue is exactly what James was talking about when he's saying our words and our deeds. Last week we talked about our words and our deeds need to match. And that's exactly what he's getting at here is that our faith and our deeds need to be matched. So I want to look at it, think about, because I don't necessarily need to approve, explain to you or prove to you this truth that James is saying when he says that words are dangerous. But I want us to think about a little more deeply how words are dangerous. And when I use the word words here, we're not simply talking spoken words. For James, that would have been the primary means of communication, the things you say. But in today's world, we communicate lots of different ways. We say things to people in many different ways. It may come in the form of a text message. It may come in the form of an email. It may come as a, a post on Facebook or Instagram Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, the list goes on and on and on, right? And whatever new app that just came out yesterday that's popular that I haven't learned about yet because I'm old. So there are all these things that are happening, all these ways that words are used. Words can be dangerous. And so I was listening to another pastor named Glenn Packiam from Colorado, and he kind of helped me think about five categories, and there's probably not even five there's probably more than that, but different ways that lead to words being so destructive, ways in which we use words in destructive ways. And so the first two, so five of them, the first two I'm going to kind of put together because there's some crossover between them, but the first two are labeling and lumping. And no, the rest of them don't begin with L, so don't worry about that. So the first two are labeling and lumping. So labeling. We use labels all the time, and labels and lumping serve a helpful purpose for us 
as human beings. Because if we did not label things, life would be very, very difficult. The fancy word for this is a taxonomy. You put something in a category. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Is imagine if every time I saw one of these, I had to explain to you, well, it's a, it's a thing about this high and it's wide and it's got a, a pole that goes down and it's got a tripod. But if I simply say a music stand, it's a label, right? And you can know that, well, maybe this is a music stand and this is a music stand and there's different things. Chairs are the same way. Imagine if every time you were talking about a chair, you'd say, well, one of those objects that has four legs and that you sit on. And so we use labels to categorize to sort things out. And it makes life, it makes communication a whole lot easier if we place a label on something. We couldn't imagine trying to function if you weren't able to label things and put labels on things and categorize and support, sort them. And in some sense, it, we do the same thing with people. There's this labeling that we do with people and we can say, okay, well, here's older people and here's policemen, and here's firefighters, and, and we can group, and we can sort, and we can label. But the problem with labels, particularly with people, is that labels can sometimes become a way to dehumanize people. It can be a way to simply categorize them and make them something. And so, all of a sudden, as you refer to this person with a label, it starts them. So let me tell a couple stories about how that works. One is there was a study done of teachers. And there were a group of students in these classrooms. And the teachers were told ahead of time that certain students were high-performing students, that they were above-average students, that they were, that they were gifted students. And then what the study did was they found that at the end of the school year, that those that the teacher had told, and these children were chosen at random. There was nothing done. So in this randomized study simply said, this group of students are high-performing students. They're, they're, they're bright students. At the end of the school year, they found that those students that the teacher had been told were high-performing students actually did about 15% better than the rest of the students on average. What had happened was the teacher had been given a label it said, this student's the bright student. And so they had treated that student in a different way. Now, is the label bright or high-performing a bad label? Not necessarily. But you see how labels can influence. Labels can also be used in a negative way. If I say that person is a bully, sometimes the label bully then becomes the total way that I see that person. All I see is them simply as a bully. Now, if you spend any time on the internet, on social media, there are no shortage of labels being tossed around for people on the internet. Well, they're a Marxist, they're a socialist, they're a Nazi, they're a libtard, they're a conservative, all these different labels. And I don't even know what they all mean. Sometimes I look at them like, I don't even know what that means. I have to look that up. But what's happened is we've put a label on somebody and said, this is who they are. And this is where it, it kind of blends into lumping because we sometimes do it and we say, 
this person has this label just because of this one thing that they've done. Well, they believe this, so they must be a liberal. And sometimes we use labels and we say, well, they're obviously a Marxist. And rarely, when I see labels used for people, are they a positive thing. We use the label what? To categorize them, to put them down and to say, you are like all these other people with that same label. So one of the popular ones sometimes used is, and there's actually a, a law called Godwin's Law, which says that as an argument increases, the longer the argument increases, the more likelihood that someone will be called in the argument a Nazi. And so the longer the argument, Godwin's Law says that the rate or the chance of it is increases to one the longer the argument goes on. And so people use the term Nazi. So what are you doing when you label someone as a Nazi? You're saying you're just like those people over there. So somebody does some minor infraction. They, they try and control something in a little way. So you're a Nazi. You say, well, wait a minute. So I'm like Adolf Hitler, this leader of a country who systematically exterminated millions and millions of people in gas chambers and ovens. And so my refusal to this is Nazi. So you see how labels work. And we label, we lump in. So that's one of the ways that words can be so destructive. Is that we label people. And along with that goes this idea of lumping. And again, this is this idea of putting together people in groups, which again is a helpful thing to do. But Alan Jacobs, a writer, talks about the necessity of saying we have to do the hard work of splitting, of splitting people about. So we, are care we get tempted to put people together. So we watch and so take some of the things that are going on in our country. So there have been protests going on around the country. And if you watch the protests, you'll see there are some people who are what? Out peacefully. They're marching, they're separately, they have some signs they're doing. And there are some people at these protests who are flipping cars over and spray painting on buildings and starting fires. And so the temptation might be to kind of, what, lump them all together. And so if you hear that somebody went out to a protest, you don't say, you're, oh, you're one of those. You're a protest. And so we lump people together. Or we do the same with are police officers, right? We see some police officers who have behaved extremely poorly, who have violated their oath. But does that mean all are the same? And so we can begin to lump them together. Or we can lump with an organization. Someone comes along and says, well, Black Lives Matter. And then everybody says, well, do you know what the Black Lives Matter stands for? The movement stands for in all their statements? Well, now we've put them together in with that. We've lumped them with all the organization stands for. And that may not have been what they meant when they said that statement. And so we have to realize that these lumping, these categories are merely, as Alan Jacobs says, are temporary, provisional, intellectual structures. Or as Dorothy Sayers says it, what is repugnant to every human being is to be reckoned always as a member of a class and not as an individual person. To be reckoned always as a member of a class. And so we lump people together. And it becomes so easy, especially the same thing happens in politics. In our political world here in the United States, for better or for worse, we have two lumped categories, right? We have Republicans 
and Democrats. And the tendency is to especially believe that, like, if you believe one thing on this issue, well, you must believe the same thing as everybody else. And so if you are, for example, an advocate of the Second Amendment and of gun rights, then you must believe everything else that every other advocate of the Second Amendment and guns rights believes, right? And we just create this lump, this giant category, and put people in there. Or if, on the other hand, you maybe have some feelings about the immigration crisis and the way it should be handled, then you, then you obviously fit in this category and this lump over here. And you must believe all of these things that those other people believe, too. See how those can be dangerous ways that we then use our words? So if I've lumped somebody in a category, I put them in a category, I'm no longer seeing them as a person, and so my words begin to hurt. So what we need to do instead is begin to see individuals as individuals, as people, and to see that they all have their own motives, their own way of thinking, and to begin to understand. And when it comes to that, that's number so labeling and lumping. The third one is we assume motives. We tend to think we are experts at knowing why somebody does something. And the way it sometimes works is we meet one person and they've done something for a particular reason. And so we just naturally assume that the next person we meet who does the same thing must be doing it for the very same reason. We meet our friend Jack, and Jack is wearing a mask. And then Jack is telling you about how he's afraid of everything, and he's scared. And so then we meet our friend Jill, and Jill is also wearing a mask. Well, Jack was afraid of everything, so he was wearing a mask, so obviously Jill must be afraid of everything. See what we've done? We've assumed motives about Jill. And Jill may very well be wearing a mask for a very different reason. Or we could say not wearing a mask. We could flip it around the same way. And we say, here's this person. And so we assume motives behind things. We watch somebody and they show up again. They show up at a protest and we think, oh, they're just virtue signaling. How many of you have heard the term virtue signaling? Virtue signaling is just like, I'm just trying to show everybody how good I am. I don't really believe this. And so virtue signaling, you can look it up online and figure out what it is. But so this idea of virtue signaling, well, maybe they are. Or maybe they're actually showing solidarity with the group of people that they're with. But we have this tendency to assume motives, to think we know exactly why someone has done something. We think we are the master detective at it. We fully understand it. And so when we assume motives, when we believe we know their motives, and rarely... To go along with that, rarely do we assume people have good motives for doing things. So often we think somebody's done something because it's a, a nefarious motive or some negative motive. If we see someone doing something we disagree with, well, obviously they have a bad motive for it. And so we see what's going on and we assume these things. And when we assume the motives, then our tongues begin to get in the way. So we assume motive. Number four is we don't consider other people's perspectives. You see, these all kind of blend together. It, it relates to seeing other people. As we look and we see people, we think about, are we seeing things from somebody else's perspective? So we can even just play a game. All right. 
So you guys know what's on this, but all right, if I ask everybody on this side of the what's on the frisbee? White, what's uh, what's on the frisbee over here? Red X. Oh, come on, guys. It's a red. Well, which one is it? These guys say red X. These guys say it's white. All right. What's on the frisbee? White. So what's going on? So again, a pastor from Texas kind of used this illustration of saying, here's these different things, and ideally we could have just had you switch seats, right? And you would have seen the difference, but the simple fa fact, the simple ability to say, what is the perspective that someone is coming to this from? What is their experience? And I've, I've talked about this before, but the importance even as we try and understand what's going on with race here in the United States is the ability to see from a different perspective, to understand where people are coming from and what it is that they've experienced. And so when we hear things and when we listen to African Americans talk about their story, why they respond to incidents, when they, why, when they hear about Breonna Taylor or um, George Floyd, and they hear these stories, why have they responded in the way they have? And you have to sit and listen to their perspective. As you hear people in the way they respond to the pandemic going on, and you have to say, well, what's your perspective? What's going on in your life? And why are you responding that way as opposed to doing it? But to realize we have to consider people's perspectives and where they're coming from. And so our tongue is so quick to decide, like, we know what's right. You know, we didn't have a big fight here, bro, but it's like you know, one side was convinced the Frisbee was white, one side was convinced it had because we weren't able to see from a different perspective. If we can't see from the other perspective, imagine the way our tongues and the words that can go back and forth. Now, the fifth and final thing is that we oftentimes, our tongues, the best of us, our tongues are the worst of the destructive when we haven't processed our own sadness. When we haven't processed our own sadness. And so often the emotion that we display often is anger. And sometimes there's something deeper going on. It's a fear. It's a sadness that's going on. And so I think even of, back to my story of in high school, the way I use my words to hurt people. And part of it was, as I've begun to process, is what was going on inside of me? And part of what was going on inside of me was a fear, a fear that I wouldn't be liked fear of not, myself not being accepted. And so that then came out because I hadn't processed that own fear. That fear came out by me putting other people down to lift myself up. But sometimes what happens people become angry about things and we see what we see manifested as anger or what we ourselves manifest as anger and maybe it's something different. In the midst of the pandemic going on here in the country, I've seen a lot of angry people. A lot of people who are really upset about all kinds of things. But I wonder if we stopped and took a moment, or if they stopped and took a moment to begin to process, is there something else that's going on? Is there this sadness over the loss of business, the sadness over the loss of jobs, the sadness over the loss of friends, the sadness over the loss of what's going on? And so out of all those things, something else comes out. But so often we are just so quick to respond and to act that we haven't processed what's going on inside of us. 
And so James says, when we do these things, when we label, when we lump, when we assume motives, when we don't consider others' perspectives, when we haven't processed our own sadness, all these different reasons, our tongue is what? Is this fire that can burn things down. Great forest set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. Right there. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow. That's the tongue. But it says all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so you think, okay, great pastor, you've told me like the tongue is terribly destructive. You've talked about all the ways you know it can hurt people. And then James says, first of all, you can't tame it. But does it say the tongue cannot be tamed? No, it says, but no human being can tame the tongue. In other words, it is not possible for people to do it. But I would suggest to you that it is possible with God. So all things may be impossible for man. Jesus had a very story like this where he told a story about a rich man. And he talks about no rich man can enter the a rich man entering the kingdom of God is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And his disciples looked and said, Well, then who then can be saved? And Jesus says, With God all things are possible. So I want us to end not on this down note of thinking, okay, my tongue is this flame, it's a it's this corrupting thing, it's the most evil part of my body, and there's nothing I can do about it. Because there is something we can do about it. We can try and we can tame our tongue with God's help. And so how can we begin to do that? How can we begin? So we're going to use a little acronym. So the word TAME, T-A-M-E. Think about ways that we can begin with God's help to tame our tongue. So the first one, the T, is talk to God about it. Release this issue to God. God say, say to God, God, I have a problem with my tongue. All right, let's practice with our tongues right now, all together. I have a problem with my tongue, right? And so we all, we all have this problem. Maybe it's a problem with your fingers or your thumbs on the keyboard, right? Same sort of thing. You have a problem with the word. And so talk to God and God say, say to God, God, first of all, show me where those things are. Show me the ways I use labels. Show me the ways I lump people together. Show me the ways I, I assume people's motives. Show me the ways I don't consider other people's perspectives because we are so often blind to those things. But God knows what's going on inside of our heart. And so we'll let God show you where those things are happening. And then give it to God. So let's talk to God about it. A, ask yourself why you use the tongue so properly. That's kind of the second is ask, ask God to help you. That's kind of what I've talked about is why are these things happening? Why, God, what, what's going on inside of me? Why am I so anxious to use my tongue this way? What sort of patterns are going on? All right. Third one, 
Make small steps. Just begin to make small steps. And this is giving ourselves over to God and following those things. So James talks about it. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. He's saying, you can't do both. You can't. I mean, he's got this weird, like, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh What is James talking about? He's like, your tongue's going to do one or the other. So he's, so what I would suggest is make small steps with your tongue. If your tongue has a habit of hurting people, start making little steps of using it to help people. Compliment people. Praise God. Maybe it's just simply saying, okay, if my tongue can't praise both God and hurt people, maybe what I need to do is begin praising God more. Read some psalms. Sing songs. Maybe when you're tempted, when you feel that urge, when you see that person who's made that post on Facebook and you're, you're wound up, you're ready to let go on them. Maybe go and find a Bible verse you can say. Maybe find a song you can sing. You can do something and begin to make those small steps. All right. So talk to God about it. Ask yourself and make small steps. Anyone want to guess what the E is? No. The E is the silent E. Silent E at the end of the word. Practice. Just practice not say anything. You know, sometimes we just need to do that. We just need to stop and say, I don't need to respond to that. We need to simply practice not saying as much because we sometimes overvalue our own. We don't understand why we're saying things. And so sometimes the best thing to say is just nothing. And so we can begin to tame our the more time we take and we simply are silent, then we can begin to learn. So what's happening is as we're doing these things, as we're talking to God about it, as, as we're asking God to show us things, as we're making small steps, as we're practicing the silent E, as we're beginning to do those things, we're giving ourselves over to God and God's Spirit is working inside of us to tame our tongue. Something we can't do on our own, but with God's help, we can James is writing a book that's about wisdom. And he's saying there is a way to live. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a way to live. And what he's saying is the only way that's possible is in Christ. That we can walk this way because Jesus is the way. That we can walk this way because Jesus is the way. And so he's showing us and saying, your tongue is destructive. He's pointing it out and he's reminding us of the dangers involved in the tongue, the destruction that it can cause, as if we needed to be reminded of it. But he's reminding us of it. Then he's saying, that's how dangerous it is. And then his words that no human being can tame the tongue. But what he's also, I think, in part implying is, we can't do it. But what the book of James is saying is, but with God's help, we can the tongue is this dangerous thing that cannot be tamed by us alone, but with the help of God it can be. So let's ask God to help us tame our tongues.
to use them not for hurting others, but use them instead to praise God, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. May God tame our tongues so they can be used for his glory and his good. Amen.